Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee and this is the first podcast of 2022. Welcome to the new bee year. If you are here to learn about bees brand new, welcome. If you are a pro or a semi-pro or something in between, welcome to Bee Chat and hopefully some bee help and techniques and ideas and inspiration. That's my goal. None of this would be possible without the support of the patrons over at patreon.com slash fiveapple, F-I-V-E-A-P-P-L-E. And I'll say more about that later. So here we are, January. I am talking to you. There is about 14 inches of snow on the ground, and last night it froze hard. (laughs) So glad I got the shoveling done. That was my share of the shoveling yesterday, so today I can make a podcast for you. As usual, bees are just amazing. So every year I have this conversation, every winter I have this conversation with myself you know, maybe I'm going to cut back on the number of hives because I do spend an awful lot of time out there in the spring, summer, fall (laughs) on the bees. And maybe I'm going to cut back on the number of hives to something more in the range of my original goal of eight or so. And I think about this and I journal about this and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, I can do this. I want to spend some more time with my garden and with friends and that type thing. Now that that possibility seems to be coming back into focus, at least once we get to spring and summer. And then I have some type of interaction with the bees and my heart gets all fluttery again over them. Even after 12 years now, 2022 will start my 13th season of beekeeping. Lord willing that I make it that far and I sure hope I do. So there were two things that really thrilled me and made me know that that intention of cutting back to eight is probably not going to (laughs) happen. Um, the first thing was I was out clearing the snow off of their little doorsteps so they could both have their ventilation and also so they could go on cleansing flight when the time comes. I had concern about the snow freezing hard, like partly melting and freezing hard into an ice block in front of their little entrance and did not want that to happen. So I was sweeping snow off the doorsteps with a little stick and uh, poking the stick into the small opening to make sure that it was clear. And this was all going to plan until I got one that I went to stick the little twig in there and it wouldn't go in. And my first thought was, oh no, man, if, if this cluster has died and fallen down by the entrance and then gotten wet and frozen into a block of ice, what a horrible thing. But also I wanted to make sure that there wasn't a pile of dead bees in front of the very small entrance that would block any live bees from getting out. So I got down really low and looked up in the hole to see what it was that was blocking my poking, and I could not see it. So I took out the whole entrance reducer bar to look in there, and I was amazed. There was a curtain of propolis that the bees had put over almost the entire opening. Now, remember, I had an entrance reducer with just the tiniest opening there, and what they had done is essentially made a baffle. So once the reducer was back in there, which I replaced it exactly like it was, then instead of walking directly out that little hole or drafts coming directly in that little hole, they made a foyer for themselves where the wind would be baffled and prevented from blowing directly right in the hive. 
I'm just amazed every time I interact with the bees and fall in love with them all over again. So here we go, 2022. I do have to moderate myself because I'm at the outer limit of my equipment, and I just don't want to add any more Langstroth equipment to my stash because I still dream of transitioning to something like a Layens type hive. More about that in future episodes. But anyway, so that was my bee amazement of the week. In the mountains of Yancey County, we had a stunningly mild early winter. November and December, I would have thought I was back in Alabama. It was so mild. Spent tons of time outside and enjoyed that, but also there's that little thing in the back of your mind that's like, "Mm, this is not right, this is not right. And of course, the bees were out there flying around, burning up their honey, and I'm like, wow, I'm going to have to feed. And then we get to January, and here comes the cold, real cold the way the winters used to be the whole winter, (laughs) even more so before I got here 20-something years ago. But as I prepared for the cold snap, checking weights on the hives, some of them were rock-heavy, no worry about those guys. And then on my smaller hives, these were baby hives to me, small nukes that I tried to grow up big enough to survive the winter. I had used the technique that I told you about cramming winter patty, into a clear sandwich container and placing that over the hole in the inner cover. And I was very proud of myself because it keeps the otherwise somewhat messy winter patty contained. And my hope was that I would be able to refill that clear container when I saw that it was getting toward empty. And in my mind, I could refill it more easily if there weren't bees crawling all over it, which is what you'll have if you place it on the top bars, which I think is how it's mostly done. But it's it's hard to add a patty when there's all those bees on the top bars. They don't respond to smoke in the winter quite like they do in the summer to you know move them aside. They are completely capable of getting really angry with you for opening them in winter. And if I open that inner cover, it breaks the propolis seal and creates a drafty environment right at the top where is the main place that you don't want any drafts because toward the end of the winter, they are all up there. And so it has been working like a charm. I love the little sandwich box trick. If all through the winter it turns out good, then I'm just going to adopt this. And that is having some type of clear container. It could be the little sandwich boxes that I happen to have a bunch of. It could be the clear takeout containers that you get soup in at a Chinese restaurant, for example. Anything clear that you can see in and anything that's going to just make a little clamshell, if you will, over the top of that hole, and then you can put your emergency feed in there. You could probably use this pretty easily with sugar bricks, though I have to confess I am still in love with the winter patties, just seeing how the bees like it, how unlike the sugar brick, it does not require much humidity or heat at all to be edible by the bees. And since these are the small colonies, and based on past experience where I had some colonies that had been alive, but were so small that they just could not generate the moisture to moisten the hard brick of sugar that I had put on there. So that's some of the things I'm loving about the winter patties still. But now there's a new bonus item. So the way I've set these up is the container of winter patty over that hole in the inner cover. Then I put an empty box on top and fill that empty box with wood shavings, which was just something that I had a lot of. The tractor supply kind that they sell for animal bedding, and we happen to use for duck bedding. I got a few extra cubes to fill up the top boxes. Now, why the 
while the R value on the box of shavings is not as impressive as one as it looks like, it looks super cozy, but the R value is just moderate. On some of them that I was a little concerned about, I took a slice of the foam board, like a two inch foam board chunk, cut it so that it would just sit inside that box on top of those wood shavings. And in my mind, that adds some more R value. And then of course the outer cover goes over the whole thing. When I refill the sandwich boxes, I do have to scoop out some of the shavings to give myself room to take the old one out, get the bees back in there, and then put the new one on. So I just carry around a plastic bucket and kind of scoop out the shavings into that bucket, do my refill. Really, it's just replacement. I have another container that's already full. And in some cases, it was very easy to just pull off the old one, pop on the new one. That is just wonderful. But the bonus side effect that I did not think of is that on some very cold days, when I went out to just peek in without exposing them to drafts, love it, and see how they were doing on their winter patty, when I was scooping away the shavings so that I could see the little box, I noticed that immediately on my cold hands, that sandwich box was just warm as toast from the heat from the cluster that it had captured. And that just thrilled me because that's a super quick sign of life check, again, without exposing anybody to the elements and without exposing me to any bees. So I could even look down in the little clear container and see them working and munching on their winter patty, which just made me fall in love with them all over again. You see what why I can't stay down to eight hives. And then as anything in my beekeeping, it just creates 10 new questions in my mind. And one of them is like that truism that we're often told in B school and actually told by a lot of people with lots of years experience in bees that, you know, bees don't heat the space they're in, they heat the cluster. And while I know that may be technically true, there's quite a bit of warmth that escapes from the cluster and goes toward the top of the hive. In my case, I'm thrilled that I have insulation up there to capture that and to moderate it. I am doing more experiments with the full top insulation without top ventilation. Now, this is not for newbies because you need to understand there's there's risk involved in this if you don't do it right. But for the people that are more experienced, I am finding that the heavy insulation over the inner cover and for some of the small hives, I'm actually putting on some sideboard, some side foam board. I don't have a lot of that going on. I probably wish I did more of that after this horrendous cold week that we're having. It's not getting above freezing and getting down into the 10, 11, 12 degree range, sometimes with wind for a couple weeks. So I'll probably be wishing as I lie awake at night wondering about my bees that I put more foam board around them at least on the top part of the hive. We'll see how it goes. But what I do love is the heavy top insulation. And for the newer beekeepers, what that does is if you have heavy, warm, and I'm not saying literally heavy, like the wood shavings are very light, as is foam board, but heavy in terms of thickness. If you have heavy insulation on the top, then that surface will not be the coldest surface of the hive, of the woodenware, and therefore the condensation of the breath of the bees will not go there to then drip back down on the cluster, which is horrible and fatal. Instead, any moisture in the hive will form condensation on the walls of the hive, 
if there's excess moisture. It's been so dry, cold lately that they're not getting moisture from the environment, but this would be all bee exhalation moisture. But as the work of Tom Seeley indicates, that is where bees get their winter water inside, for example, in a natural tree cavity, the upper insulation is pretty much endless, our value, and then the sides would be the thinner. So if there's any moisture going on in there, it's going to be the on the sides, and they would have access to it when it warms up enough for them to move around and unfreeze. Then they could use that water without leaving the hive or to water down the sugar brick or the mountain camp feeding or whatever you're doing for an emergency reserve on a hive that is not rock heavy. So that's my report for today about what's going on around here. I want to pause for a second and say thank you to the Patreon angels of this podcast. They are the reason that you are listening to this podcast right now, because if not for them, you would be listening to some other beekeeping podcast because I wouldn't be able to do this one. These folks have made it possible. Huge thank you to someone who's essentially an ex executive producer of this podcast, and that is Michael C. in South Carolina. Thank you to Angels Julie, Mary A., Melissa S., Nicole B., Thomas J., Will C., Jason D., and Mark S. I wouldn't mind saying your whole name, but I would want your permission before I did that. And then I also want to thank some of the, the longest supporters that have put their funds toward this podcast for the longest length of time. Again, Michael C., there at the top, Will C., Mary A., Matthew S., Nicole B., Jason D., Mark S., Chuck J., Darla L., Dean R., who I think, Dean, you've been with me from the very, very, very beginning, and Susan H. Thank you to every single one of you. And listeners, these are the folks that help make this podcast stay on the air. So here we are in mid-January. In so many ways, it really is the beginning of the bee season, even when there's snow and ice on the ground out there, even if there's months before you're able to see the bees fly, depending on where you are. But in a tiny, minuscule way, as soon as the light begins to get longer, and it's already around here, I can tell the difference in the evenings. I have at least 30 more minutes to get out there and feed the ducks before they get on the pond and won't come in if it gets too dark. And I am appreciative for that wonderful extra 30 minutes, and I'm appreciative for every 30-minute quantity that the light increases. But inside the colony, as soon as the days begin to lengthen, the queen is going to start a tiny, tiny brood nest. It still creates new risk for the cluster because now they are dedicated to that tiny brood nest. They will not leave the brood to move, for example, to the left or to the right to get honey. And if you have a long extended cold snap, that can be dangerous. This is why I'm so fond of having food right above their head. I talk about them being able to eat their roof, and that's always a goal to me, whether that is a honey frame above them, because somehow the cluster seems able to stretch out upwards. It seems like seems like they can do that without any trouble, but going from frame to frame, from left to right, can be challenging. And on long hives, that's even more of a challenge that the beekeeper has to keep an eye on. But that tiny, tiny amount of brood, now they begin to increase the temperature in the center of that cluster because instead of just kind of hibernating in the way that they do, 
they are active in the center of that cluster. The temperature goes up. They begin to burn more, more fuel. And they're burning more fuel at a time. It's very possible that they're getting toward the low end of the tank. So as a beekeeper, your mission from here on out is to make sure they don't starve. Because the first two things that come to mind that are likely to make you lose your colonies from this point onward, one is population. For whatever reason, they have lost too much population to maintain a viable cluster in terms of being able to survive the coldest temps from here onward. That could be because they started out small. For example, these baby colonies that I'm telling you about, that's why I am babying them because they are already kind of the smallest viable population at best. So I do give them some extra TLC. In a hive, in a full-grown hive, if they have dwindled down to a very small population, then the cause is likely disease pressure, viral pressure, usually from mites the summer before. That is a cause that you can't fix at this point unless you could go back to last summer in a time machine and do something different. On those, the best thing that can happen if you lose them is that you save the comb because then when you start again, whether it's from a package or a nuke or just a split off one of your other hives, the drawn comb, as always, is the gold of the hive. It takes a few years to really wrap around that, but boy, once you get it, then the the wax, the drawn comb, that is the treasure. The other challenge on those small populations, and I've learned this the hard way too, on the smaller populations, the baby hives that I tried to get big enough to go through the winter, maybe they were late, later summer splits or started with queen cells or something like that, they may be robustly healthy, but the small population, what happens is every cold snap, there's some soldiers that don't make it home. They try, but they don't make it. And so the cluster can kind of slough off that outer layer and lose it. And if they have done that too early, then there's just not enough bees to keep them warm, A. But then the second effect is that there's not enough bees to create, left over, to create a viable brood nest and to get the brood to essentially, they don't have enough population to raise up the replacement troops because the pressure of creating a brood nest and essentially trying to create the whole batch of new spring bees is just too much for them. And this is something where I have learned if I have in early spring, if I have a little cluster, they're still alive, but they're just, they don't look big enough to really have a healthy uh, growth, then sometimes I can either pull brood frames and by this do it carefully because if they can't keep those brood frames warm, then you're going to just kill other frames of brood. But if you can very carefully, when it warms up a little bit, give them frames of mature capped brood, then it can boost their population in a way that will get them over that hump. If they are not big enough to keep that frame of brood alive, then it's best to just keep it where it is, but in a big booming hive. But it can work in the early spring if you do some robin hooding instead of honey frames of brood frames. So if you have multiple hives and one, if you're trying to level out the size of those hives, and honey producers do this all the time, then they pull frames of brood and put them into other hives so that everybody gets closer to being the same size, which is what you need in a honey yard. 
So the robin hooding of mature cat to brood or honey frames or even nectar frames or pollen frames, robin hooding is an important concept in keeping your yard going at some of those critical junctures. And early spring is definitely a population and food dependent critical juncture. The food is all on you. You have complete control to be able to feed them with a type of food that they can use at that time. And depending on how early spring it is, that would be whether you go with the types of emergency feedings like the winter patties, sugar bricks, mountain camp, that type of thing. Or if it's later in the spring and you're in a warm area, you may be able to start with some liquid feed, but that's completely temperature dependent on where you are. Mid-spring, early in mid-spring for us here in the mountains can be very complicated because there can be maple trees absolutely covered in blooms that would allow them to get all the pollen and nectar that they need, but the weather can can completely mess that up because if it's windy, too cold to fly, raining, misty rain, all the variations that do happen in these mountains, they can't get to all that food. And it's so frustrating when that happens. So if beekeepers could design their early spring, we would definitely have warm, dry flying weather when those incredible maples are blooming. And then, since you are going to prevent starvation of your bees, I want you to commit to that. The next job for beekeepers of all kinds is preparing for expansion. If you've been doing this a few years, then you're in the situation like me where that job is to repair and clean up and repaint any boxes that are going to be your supers or to expand your brood nest if you need to do that in the spring. This is where I always tell the story of one of my first mentors here in the mountains, Joe Caps, who sent out a famous January email to all the club members very emphatically and very concisely telling us, get your supers ready. If you don't do it in January, Probably the next time you are going to think about this is when you see your bees hanging from the trees. Joe's a retired Marine, <laughs> and he's not keeping bees anymore due to health issues and bear problems. That's a wicked combination. But I will always be so thankful for some of the things he taught me, and I will never have a January where I don't think of his email. I used to look forward to it so much because it was the sign. It was the sign that he was saying, okay, here we go. It's about to start. So sending out a thank you to Joe and wishes for continued strong health. But on that topic, as spring starts, the thing you need to be ahead of the curve on is getting ready for expansion. Once you get a stash of equipment, this is less of a big deal, although I will confess I am the person, I am the person <laughs> that Joe was warning you about that is furiously scraping and getting a box ready and just say, oh, well, forget about the paint. Hopefully it'll survive another season. When I see them, when I open the top and they're already crammed, since I do use the eight frame mediums, it gives me an extra secret weapon, which is just that instead of worrying about reversing boxes like of deep brood boxes, which can have issues that it can, you don't want to split the brood nest ever in weather that when it, when the weather still gets cold. And then even when the weather's warm, you don't want to do it in the sense that it will take the bees days and days to put it all back uh, like they want it. But when the weather is cold, you don't want to do it because you could easily lose half of that brood nest or all of it if you split it in two by taking two boxes, each of which contain the upper and lower 
part of that brood nest orb. And if you reverse those, then you've messed all that up. You've created empty space between the two areas of brood. The great thing, though, about using all mediums is by the end of winter, they are generally up in the top two boxes of mediums. And any below that, if the stack was taller, are probably virtually empty and are full of drawn comb. And so for the lazy beekeeper like me, I can often just take out that bottom box and put it on the top. Now, ideally, what I do is pull out some of the blackest, oldest brood frames for recycling into candles and put some fresh foundation in there for them to be making that beautiful new white honeycomb that is so gorgeous and also is a disease-free, hopefully chemical-free zone to raise the future brood nest. But expansion is the thing that comes after winter and that's what you want to be ready for. Now, brand new bees who are starting with packages or even a new nuke, that's a whole different category. But new beekeepers who have overwintered their hives and successfully get them through to spring, I want to give you an alert, prepare you that you have not experienced what an overwintered hive acts like. And it is completely, completely different than your hive was its starter year if you started with a package or something like that. They come out robust, if you're lucky, (laughs) robust and ready to get going on their swarm prep. So it's a little bit more tricky for brand new beekeepers because they don't have drawn comb to distract them with and add more room to the brood nest so that the bees go, oh, look at all this room. Why go anywhere? Let's fill this up and buy yourself some time. They look at foundation and go, oh, wow, that's not room. And they get ready to to swarm to a more spacious thing. So talk to your mentor, study the books, all that type thing about getting ready for swarm prevention. And I say swarm prevention in the sense that Why not make a split and put your bees in another box instead of donating them to the trees where you may or may not be able to get them? And your neighbor may or may not be so lucky to get them in their attic or walls. So get prepared to get more boxes and to get more frames. If you are in the unfortunate category, category that covers most beekeepers of having losses this winter, hopefully the loss is not of all your bees, but The drawn comb that is left in a a dead out is the treasure to protect. It'll probably be okay through the winter if it's getting cold enough at night to and wax moths aren't flying and doing their awful, horrible thing. But as soon as it warms up, they're in danger. It's still in danger even in the winter from mice that might want to get in there and eat everything they can and make horrible nests. So you would want to to block the entrance, say with hardware, the bee hardware cloth or something, if you were just leaving the dead out out in the yard. If you are breaking it down and bringing it inside, then you will need to do some other technique to keep the wax moths from eating all that beautiful comb. The good part, even if you are discouraged, even if you have lost your bees, don't give up because you have drawn comb and that is going to make starting again Nothing like starting from the first time. Starting with drawn comb is a walk in the park compared to starting with brand new equipment and just foundation. It is hard to explain what a difference it is, but you'll see it if you hang on and protect that comb. You will be able to make an easy split off your surviving hive, or you will be able to get a a nuke from someone, or you'll be able to install a package on it 
and it will go forward in leaps and bounds compared to the bare foundation. And on that whole topic, here is the traditional midwinter speech of don't give up. As a beekeeper, there will probably be winters after which you're like, I want to give up. I have had two of those in my years of beekeeping where I was like, I I just don't know that I can face the losses that I took. Thankfully, since then, I've added a lot of skills to my toolbox and have not had that problem again. In both cases, I scraped by with just enough hives to be able to start again from my own bees, which was thrilling. And one of those winters, I really thought, my God, I'm going to have to start all over again. But thankfully, thankfully, I had survivors enough to start again with my own stock. I think it's important to say for the newer beekeepers, our culture, our our society is not really arranged around a skill that takes a long time that usually will extract a lot of failures from you and then still expect you to go on. You have to be really resolute to be a beekeeper. You have to be committed to it. And for those who are brand new uh, starting, of course, they probably turned this off by now because all the front half, <laughs> they were like, what the heck is she talking about? And probably turned it off. But for the, the, the newer beekeepers, you will probably be tempted to quit at some point in your early years. But the only difference between the ones who quit and the ones who go on to become skilled beekeepers, the only difference is that the skilled beekeepers did not give up. They kept going, they kept pushing, they kept teaching themselves, learning from others, practicing their skill. And at some point, you've got the skills where you can reliably decide whether you want to keep doing bees. That's not the problem, but you won't be, oh, I give up. Our culture is not really good at patience anymore. Everything is so fast. And beekeeping is one of those old skills that requires years to develop, years to develop. It's not something that we can sit down, read the instruction manual, bang it together and call it good and never have to struggle again. It will always be something that you have to pay attention to, that you have to continually learn because the situation changes. It'll change if you move to a different area. It will change if the neighborhood around you changes. Uh, For example, from a rural neighborhood, if it gets a bunch of subdivisions, then the pressures on your bees have, have just changed. What will be required of you will change if the weather is changing in, in your, in your area as it is here in the mountains. It used to be much more reliably cold through winters up here, but now we are in the up and down, up and down, up and down, which I find more challenging than the reliably cold. So beekeeping is a long, slow build of skills. And I want to tell you, I was having a conversation with a professional writer the other day who talked about spending an entire day on a very short piece of writing. (laughs) And then at the end of the day, It was garbage. It it didn't work. It had to be scrapped. And we were having this whole conversation, me as a beekeeper and her as a writer, about when you spend time on your skills, when you are working your practice, you are practicing, that is never wasted time. If you're paying attention, if you're thinking while you're practicing and going, okay, what went wrong or what's going right, if you really think about all those elements, then On one level, it doesn't matter if the actual hive is a success or a failure. 
in the sense that of your beekeeping skills, because you can learn as much from a dead hive on what you did wrong, what you can do different in the future, as you can a robust gangbuster hive. In fact, maybe you can learn more because you'll notice we don't talk that much about the robust gangbuster hives, even though hopefully they are the overwhelming majority of your yard. We talk a lot about the things that didn't go right with the purpose of learning and applying that to the future so things will go righter. But for the newer beekeepers, I want to ask you to to commit to sticking with it. Commit to sticking with it. Commit to building yourself a beekeeping community, whether that is through a bee club or association, or whether it is through getting to know a handful of beekeepers and staying in touch and talking about it and sharing resources and sharing ideas. Either one of those, better yet, both will progress your skill building. So don't give up. For brand new beekeepers, If you've stuck through this long with this podcast, you probably have what it takes. (laughs) The one caution I would give, and I've seen it often on new bee discussions online, is people will say, I'm thinking about getting into bees. How much time does it take? Exactly how much time does it take to keep bees? And a little warning bell goes off in the back of my head, because if you are that pressed for time, then beekeeping may be a difficult hobby for you. If you are pressed for time, maybe short of money, and maybe have a lot going on in your life, I would really suggest before you invest in a hive and all that to take a year to work side by side with a beekeeper. You will know by the end of that season whether you want to do it or not. And if you did that, if you took a year to pause and consider and learn and read and most of all, work elbow to elbow, or even six foot apart, (laughs) if we're still there. Oh gosh, I hope we're not. But you will learn so much more from the real thing than any book or class or any combination of book and class. It's just hard to say how much more you will learn, but it is true. But if you are looking for a class, check with your local club, see what they have going on. Some may not be doing in-person classes, depending on where they are and what kind of uh, human disease pressure is in your area. I'm seeing quite a few virtual B-schools being offered. Preferably, if you can, find one in a region that's similar to yours. And that way, the seasonal cycles will help you get started in in learning your own. If you are in Michigan and you take a virtual beekeeping class out of California or Texas or Florida, it is going to be so different in the seasonal pattern that it may really be a struggle for you. So try to find one in a climate region that is as similar to your own as you can find. Also, it should not cost you an arm and a leg. You should not have to dump a couple hundred dollars for a virtual bee class. I believe they could be found for a hundred bucks or less And I would also encourage you to find one from a reputable source, like a university or an established bee club, if you can. If you know other brand new beekeepers, I would invite you to go back to the first several, first couple of months of 2020 in this podcast. I did some episodes called Radio Bee School. While they are definitely not a stand-in for a real beginner bee class, I think of them as the missing manual, as I've heard it said, the missing instruction manual. To me, it is the stuff that I wish someone had told me because the way my brain works is more on a kind of systems level 
And the B class that I attended was definitely not. It was definitely recipe driven, do this, do this, and factoid driven. And it wasn't probably three years later did all that stuff make sense. But because I was obsessed early, I was reading and studying and talking to people and going to people's yards and it all it all came together. But but if you haven't and you're a newbie, you may want to go and look for those January I think it was January, February, March. There's a there's several episodes called B School Radio and I believe it will give some beginner concepts that are helpful. Or if you struggled through your first year and you haven't listened to those, you might might try them out. Because on that topic a friend and I had a conversation a couple years back when I began to mentor her. She had actually been doing beekeeping a few years with a different mentor. And she asked for my help. And I knew she was very dedicated to her beekeeping and was really putting in the work of learning. And so those are the kind of people I really, really want to help. So as we went through some of the mentoring and I went to her yard and helped her with some of her hives and she came to mine and helped me with some of mine. What she said at the end was that she just could not believe how much she had learned from me in such a short time. And of course, I was thrilled with that. You know, my head was getting big, but it it really wasn't so much that as I taught in a different way. Her first mentor had been what I think of as recipe based, you know, preheat the oven to this many degrees, get a cup of this, do this, do this when, set your timer. And that's a that's one kind of way to do bees. And there are some people, including some semi-commercial beekeepers, who do it that way. They don't really stop and think about how the biological organism is working and how the seasons are working on it and all that. They know all this stuff, just not in those words. But then there's others of us that are more, you know, your biology majors, your farmers, your gardeners your homesteaders that are attentive to cycles of weather and nectar. We're the folks that need it explained in kind of a different way. We need the systems based. How does this whole system work? It's it's less about learning the recipe of exactly what to do as understanding the life cycle of that colony and the preferences of that colony and their natural their natural flow, and also their natural preferences. When we learn those things, in my opinion, that can make beekeeping so much of an adventure because you're just watching them to to learn from them. That alone, I think, is a pretty difficult way. It's a, we talk about slow, a really slow way to become a skilled beekeeper. But if you combine that biological angle, the living being angle, of bees in general and that colony in particular with some of the recipe information, stuff you need to know about how to set up a Langstroth hive if that's what you're using, when to be on the lookout, what to be prepared for, the kind of the kind of calendar recipe angle, all that's vital, but also in my opinion if you add in the natural cycle, the biology, the life cycle of the bee, each bee, their developmental cycle, and then also the life and developmental mental cycle 
of the whole colony. And I guess what I've just realized in, in talking to you just now is that's what was missing from my beginner bee education is there was very much, I mean, there was literally the life cycle of an individual bee. It is an egg this many days. It is a larva this many days. It is a nurse bee this many days. And at the time I remember thinking, why am I going to need to know those numbers? Well, it turns out all that is really important, but I didn't even know enough to know why I would need those numbers later. But I couldn't grasp any of that until I understood the life cycle of the whole colony, which is the organism. The whole colony is the organism that you're working with. But anyway, as I, I obviously I need to think it through before I say any more. For the beekeepers that are further down the road in their experience, I want to challenge you to challenge yourself this year to pick something new, something different, some skill set that maybe has attracted your attention, but you don't have. And I want to challenge you to dedicate yourself to learning that this year, whatever it is. If you've done Langstroth, maybe you want to try a long hive. If you've done top bars, maybe you want to try a Langstroth. Who knows? If you have not raised your own queens, maybe you want to learn that. If you've never done a split of your own hive, maybe you want to learn that. Whatever it is, pick a thing and start studying it now and then dedicate yourself to doing it this year. It's a, such a good feeling to consciously think of where are my skills? What do I not know? What would be good to know? What seems fun to know? And to dig in to that. It is really fun. And again, in our culture, there's just not a lot of places to do that. We're such an instantaneous microwave, instant, have it in a minute <laughs> type of people anymore, sadly. Um, so I love the part of beekeeping that requires us to go back and to slow down, and to learn to learn more deeply. So I'll wrap this up for now. I've gone on way too long. In the next show, I will be sharing a cool article with you, More Bee Amazement, that I've been saving for you. I will also let you know who was the lucky patron who got the book that I reviewed in the final podcast of 2021. And then also, I'm just going to think of three tips that have been important in my learning beekeeping and I'm just going to share three tips with you. I will think what they are between now and then. <laughs> all right. Have a great week. I am so cheering you all on. I want you all to stick with it. If it was a bad winter, I want you to be strong and resolute enough to just go forward. If it was a great winter, I want you to be prepared for what the joy and amazement that you're about to have. All right. I'm signing off. Thank you, each and every listener. If you feel moved to leave a five-star iTunes review. It helps other people find the podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.